This talk is about the governance of obesity, specifically through its measurement. Um, how does this happen? Well, we know there are lots of government statistics. There are things like, uh, in the UK, the National Child Measurement Programme now are uh, uh, national statistics. That is, they enter the body of all kinds of statistics that are used uh, in uh, governance more broadly. In the United States, there are statistics collected annually on obesity rates, um, collated by the Centers for Disease Control. Um, so this talks about how these measurements um, um, come together in, uh, in uh, how obesity is governed. So the measurement and classification of obesity is fundamental to its regulation and both economics and epidemiology broadly map the obesity landscape to be regulated. Epidemiological data collection and reporting and the use of obesity epidemiology in econometric modelling of the impacts of obesity are usually starting points for state-led interventions. The spur to policy action by most nation-states is usually overwhelmingly economic, um, although this has become overlaid by considerations of complexity in some places. The most persuasive political arguments usually involve framing obesity as a significant burden to the economy and health service, usually through costs to the employers. Uh, it's the costs of medical management and uh, the management of the chronic diseases that are associated with it. Relationships between obesity and uh, factors presumed to cause it um, and economics have been variously demonstrated. Economists have modelled the costs to nations of rising rates of obesity and the likely outcomes of economic interventions on these rates, including the taxation of particular foods and particular types of food. Econometric modelling has also been has also shown technological changes which have lowered the cost of food calories and made work more sedentary to be associated with higher obesity rates. In addition, changes in the price of food have been shown to have small but important effects on body weight and obesity rates. While price of food has declined generally since the 1960s, that of healthy, more energy-dense food has been shown to have fallen more sharply than of healthier food, at least in the United States and the United Kingdom. Rising rates of um, um, rising incomes have been shown to have increased the demand for food in economically emerging nations, and also, which have also led to higher obesity rates. Economists have also shown that in high-income countries, time has become increasingly scarce, with more people eating high-energy-dense, ready-prepared foods and meals outside of the home, and both of these are known to lead to increased energy intake and to predispose to obesity. Obesity rates across nations have also been modelled in relation to welfare provision and regime, with Nordic welfare states having lower obesity rates than market-liberal, predominantly English-speaking nations. Both epidemiology and economics employ standardised and institutionalised methods for quantifying matters of importance for governmental regulation. Such measures include population size and distribution, income, birth and death rates, life expectancy at birth, as well as disease rates and risk factors for chronic disease. In most countries, 
Obesity is reported in terms of proportions of adults with body mass index, which is greater than 30 kilograms per meter squared. That's the cutoff point. And this cutoff point has been repeatedly validated against specific causes of death and total mortality rates in various places with increasingly large samples. It seems to be reasonably robust. The measurement of obesity rates and its reporting provides evidence for the existence of population obesity and its changing patterns across time and for identifying possible governmental interventions against it. With respect to the importance of data collection for chartered obesity policy, um, it's been stated, at least in the Australian context, that policy can be made in the absence of strong research evidence, but where powerful and competing interest groups contest um, possible policy options, the evidence needs to be substantial. The most basic form of evidence for obesity policy is nationally representative data on obesity rates across administrative units and across time. Um, illustrations include the kinds of obesity prevalence maps that are produced in the United Kingdom and the United States where obesity rates are shown to vary according to nation state and local authority um, and uh, according to you know state of, uh, of uh, states of the United States in addition year-on-year -year measurement can be used to construct maps of changing rates of obesity um, as um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States has uh, has also done for example The economic cost of obesity within and across nations varies according to a number of factors, including the balance of obesity rates, demographic structure, patterns of employment, including female participation in the workforce, the health burden related to obesity, the extent of privatised medicine, and the market for and desirability of non-medicalised treatments. The political importance of obesity regulation by nation-states varies according to the proportion and distribution of the, of the uh, population that is obese, as well as its cost to the economy and in relation to ideology, of course. Obesity in a neoliberal framework offers significant economic opportunities as well as costs. Medical service provision and the administration of pharmaceutical interventions and surgical procedures are all business opportunities, as are things like the provision of weight management services and weight management products. In the United States, direct obesity costs were 147 billion in 2008, and this represented about 1% of gross domestic product in that year. In the UK, the figures were much smaller. Obesity treatment in the UK in 2007 was only 0.3% of GDP, still a huge number. In the United States, 29% of the direct cost of obesity in 2008 was borne by private health care, making the direct cost of obesity to the state around 0.7% of GDP. This was offset by the $33 billion per year that citizens of the United States spend on weight loss products in addition to the $43 billion of spending on obesity treatment through private health care. Removing these two offsets from the direct cost of obesity to the state would make the balance to the US economy a positive one, to the extent of 0.5% of GDP, if there were no indirect costs to the economy, such as time taken off work. Such costs move profit into overall marginal loss to the United States economy. 
In the UK, increasing healthcare privatization would increase would reduce some of the direct medical costs of obesity to the state, which is 4.2 billion pounds, as estimated in 2007. Um, but on the other hand, the economic opportunity associated with obesity is much lower than in the United States. All types of economic analysis rely on the best possible representative data on obesity rates at the level of analysis that's needed, international, national, regional, or local, with the possibility of disaggregating these rates into groups, such as gender, age, and inequality, that are meaningful for understanding, um, uh, uh, for economic understanding and for political action. Now I'm going to look at how and why such numbers are used in support of obesity governance and political regulation. <laughs> the body mass index has been adopted for epidemiological and public health use because it reflects both energy stores and ecological context, and at the upper end of population distribution shows strong associations with morbidity and mortality from a number of different chronic diseases and disorders diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and so on. Other anthropometric measures, such as waist circumference, waist-hip ratio, and waist-height ratio, compete well with it. So it's not the perfect measure, and there are other measures that could be used. BMI persists as a standard measure of obesity for both pragmatic and historic reasons. The BMI, the BMI has been used for far longer than any other anthropometric measure of obesity and was the first to be appropriated for the assessment of obesity rates in populations after measures of stature and weight had been formalized for predicting obesity. There's no alternative measure of obesity that's collected nearly as systematically as the body mass index. And to change the standard measure of global obesity surveillance now would throw the international governance of obesity into disarray exactly at a time when adult obesity rates, at least, continue to, continue to rise. Classification of childhood obesity using body mass index is more problematic than for adults. This is because of the variability in the growth rates of children both within and between populations. In childhood and adolescence, the non-obese range of BMI changes with changing body proportions with age, making fixed obesity cutoff points inappropriate. Age-specific cutoffs for childhood overweight and obesity that pass through adult classification cutoffs for overweight and obesity have been put forward for international use and were approved around, you know, in the early 2000s. And this has allowed enumeration of overweight and obesity in childhood and adolescence using normative distributions that vary by age and sex. While in adults it's possible to establish directly the increased health risks associated with increased BMI, most health effects of childhood obesity, with the exception of risk markers for type 2 diabetes, only become manifest in adult life and not in childhood. While relationships between body size and physical condition were adequately known for them to be used in military conscription from the 17th century and in the slave trade from the 19th century, they were only incorporated into life insurance estimation of mortality prediction in the early, early 20th century. The publication of standard weight-for-height tables 
by the life insurance industry began with the medical actuarial mortality investigations of 1912. These tables provided ideal, so-called ideal weight ranges, for, weight ranges of height for use among insured adults in the United States and Canada, according to sex in three categories of body frame, so small, medium, and large. The first version of these standard weight for height tables, based on actuarial data relating to blood pressure as a proxy for chronic disease risk, came into general use for assessing ideal body weight in 1942 by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in the United States. The call for a more universal measure of ideal body size than the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company tables for use in epidemiological medical study came in the 1950s with the first epidemiological description of blood pressure relative to body fatness as determined by different weight to height ratios. This was initially done in a Norwegian population. Body weight is to some extent related to stature. Taller people any of us can observe are generally heavier. The relationship, however, is non-linear, and even direct correction for height doesn't remove this relationality. The height dependency of weight and stature-based measures of obesity was of concern um, in the 1950s because, if significant, it made it difficult to create a simple universal measure of nutritional status. After examining the height dependency of a number of, number of weight, height indices and ratios, um, authors in Norway concluded that weight over height squared gave the best weight, height-independent measure of relative weight. Um, this was followed by um, um, studies by Ansel Keys and colleagues who you know, really delved into this very deeply, trying to work out the best way of uh, assessing relative weight. Subsequent studies in British Cook Islander and United States populations confirmed um, the robustness of weight over height squared as a measure of, uh, of obesity. Ansel Keys, for example, um, did a large study of the relative height independence of body fat prediction using different weight for height ratios. What they found generally was much lower correlations of height with weight over height squared than with either weight over height or weight over height cubed. Body fatness, as represented by the sum of skin folds, the triceps and subscapular fold, uh, sites, was in general equally correlated with weight over height and weight over height squared, but much less so with weight over height cubed. Ansel Keyes and his colleagues concluded in 1972 that in confirmation of other studies, that the ratio weight over height squared was clearly better than other measures of relative weight. And they also determined that this ratio be named the body mass index, the measure that we now have and use and, and, and have coined in 1972. That's when it was first, uh, first defined as body mass index. The cutoffs for ideal weight used by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company tables are similar to those that were subsequently recommended for the assessment of obesity using the body mass index by the Royal College of Physicians in the United Kingdom. That was in 1983. The adoption of the closest whole number body mass index equivalent value to the very lowest and very highest boundaries 
of healthy weight in the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company tables by the Royal College of Physicians permitted healthy weight to be determined without having to consider or measure frame size. This is an undefined construct. And this simplified the process of, of obesity assessment. The body mass index is far from being completely independent of stature, however. The range of ideal weight, according to the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company tables, maps better onto the normal range of body mass index um, for shorter individuals than for taller ones, the normal range of body mass index being between 18.5 and 25 kilograms per meter squared. The standard BMI cutoff for overweight is therefore likely to give underestimates in taller individuals and populations relative to shorter ones, and the same is likely to be true for obesity. Despite this caveat, the BMI cutoffs of 18.5, 17, and 16 kilograms per meter squared were accepted for the assessment of chronic energy deficiency in 1992. The BMI cutoffs of 25 and 30 for overweight and obesity were accepted by the World Health Organization in 1997. Following the acceptance of body mass index as the least imperfect measure of relative weight came the standardization of risk mortality and morbidity at the lower and higher extremes of body mass index. Studies linking body mass index to economic productivity were also initiated once BMI was formally accepted by the World Health Organization as the standard measure of both adult undernutrition and of obesity. In the formalization of BMI for international use for the measurement of obesity, the overarching aim was to provide simplicity for assessment and monitoring of obesity worldwide. The extent of underreporting of obesity rates among taller populations was considered of much less importance than the possibility of using a standard measure of obesity across the world. Standardized classification of obesity was accepted by the World Health Organization because it claimed that it allowed meaningful comparisons within and between populations. It also allowed the identification of individuals and groups at increased risk of morbidity and mortality, and it also allowed the identification of priorities for intervention at individual and community levels, and gave a firm basis for evaluating interventions. We can all challenge these claims to some extent, but as a very broad brush kind of general one-size-fits-all measure, BMI has persisted um, as a, a standard measure of obesity. Now what happened when the international reporting of obesity using body mass index? Uh, um, there were some unexpected observations. Using BMI cutoffs of 30 kilograms per meter squared suddenly allowed a comparison of, of, of populations across the world, when before there were so many different measures of obesity that were used in different countries, it was impossible to see what, uh, uh, what was what. <coughs> obesity rates in the United States were shown to be higher than in the European nations. That was to be expected. The extraordinary high obesity rates shown in some Pacific Island nations, like Nauru, for example, the Cook Islands, were also well known. But what also became apparent was that nations such as Kuwait and Saudi Arabia had rates of obesity comparable to those of the United States. 
as did South Africa, Turkey and Uruguay in the 1990s. Things continue to change, of course, but uh, this was the first eye-opener. Such international comparisons allowed obesity to, to be thought about in more comparable ways, creating the possibility of cross-national approaches to obesity regulation. It also allowed discussions that invoked national particularism in relation to obesity. Why should obesity rates be high in the US and low in France, for example? National particularism was used to set up obesity in the US as a matter of class, politics, culture, economics, and morality. In contrast, obesity in France was framed as involving both aesthetic and medical issues. Another particularism was invoked in the construction of Pacific Islander obesity as an outcome of thrifty genotypes. Yet another characterization for example, of the, uh, uh, of the people of Nauru as being lazy, was put forward a partial explanation of the high type 2 diabetes um, rates there, a quality that hasn't been evident to anthropologists having worked there. Such particularisms risk making chronic disease epidemiology complicit in stigmatizing the very people they're trying to support. So by, by you know, creating a sort of essential categories of, of, of obesity, suddenly populations become, uh, um, become stigmatized for the very thing that they have. And you know, we should be helping, not, trying, not, not hindering in this way. While BMI cutoffs for obesity classification are viewed as being meaningful according to epidemiological analyses, they can differ from individual health perceptions of health and well-being. For example, self-reported health status of adults in the UK is lower among obese people than among people categorized as being of normal weight with respect to physical function, bodily pain, general health and vitality, but much less so with respect to social fun functioning and mental health. When perceived health and well-being in this particular study uh, was disaggregated according to chronic disease status, a different pattern emerged. All aspects of health and well-being were shown to be similar for healthy, and, healthy obese and healthy non-obese subjects, but experience of chronic disease reduced all measures of perceived health and well-being, including social functioning and mental health, to a greater extent among obese subjects than among non-obese subjects. So, obesity might not be perceived as a problem among those carrying excess body fatness prior to experiencing any of the chronic diseases associated with it. And this might be a factor in the obesity scepticism expressed by some healthy obese people. While the BMI has been universally adopted for obesity assessment, it doesn't have the best fit for all the purposes to which it's been assigned. As I've already said, individual classification, screening and monitoring for medical purposes, population monitoring for public health purposes, and econometric modelling. There are trade-offs involved. As the relationships between BMI, fatness and morbidity vary across populations, there are problems of how best to classify obesity using BMI. Relationships with morbidity and mortality vary according to the measure of obesity used and the population that's under investigation, be it of European, Asian or African ancestry, whether it's a young population, old population, whether we're considering males or females, 
for example. The relationships also vary um, among the various classificatory boundaries that are used in obesity research and practice. So, for example, in some Chinese and Asian populations, there's increased chronic disease risk at lower levels of body mass index than among European populations. And it's led to the call that uh, the recommendation for, should be for lower cutoffs for overweight and obesity in people of Asian origin. At the other extreme, Pacific Islander populations generally have lower body fatness relative to lean mass at any level of body mass index, and this prompts the suggestion that higher BMI cutoffs should be used to assess overweight and obesity in those populations. That is, using the cutoff of body mass index 30, we might actually be overestimating how much obesity there is in uh, in the Pacific Islands and underestimating how much obesity there is in South Asia and Asia more generally. Epidemiological critiques of BMI include its inconsistent relationship with body fatness that doesn't distinguish between potentially harmful fat in the liver and viscera and that it doesn't reflect health risk very well except at the extremes. In addition, anthropometric measurement of obesity has been critiqued by social scientists for its medical distancing of the individual experience of living with a fat body. Body measurement in public health practice has also been viewed by social sciences, science, social scientists, I should say, as a way of universalizing the human body by governmental institutions through epidemiological reporting, by relating individuals to norms and health to measurement. Alex Brewis and her colleagues at Arizona State University note the stigma that accompanies the measurement and medicalization of fat bodies. It's not a neutral practice. The dominant case for obesity as an issue of health and economic consequence comes from epidemiological studies that relate obesity to mortality. There are many of these, to the point that meta-analyses of such work is common. Evidence from systematic reviews of adult chronic disease subsequent to childhood obesity shows that there is significant increased risk of premature death with childhood and adolescent overweight and obesity, as well as significantly increased risk of cardiometabolic morbidity, that is, risk of disease of diabetes, hypertension, ischemic heart disease, and stroke in adult life. Cardiovascular disease risk is, however, dependent on the tracking of BMI from childhood to adulthood, with the risk of raised blood pressure in adult life being highest among those at the lower end of the BMI scale in childhood, but overweight in adulthood. What this suggests is that the period of developmental programming for increased chronic disease risk in adult life extends beyond fetal and infant development into childhood and adolescence. Another systematic review observed that the majority of epidemiological studies looking at relationships between BMI and chronic disease across life failed to adjust for adult BMI, and that associations found in different studies might reflect the tracking of BMI across the lifespan rather than direct relationships between childhood obesity and adult chronic disease risk. So, problems. In studies where adult BMI has been adjusted for, weak negative associations between childhood BMI and metabolic variables have been found, with those at the lower end of BMI range in childhood but obese but but being obese during adulthood, showing higher risk. So body mass index, a single simple measurement, 
only gives you a snapshot um, but doesn't integrate all the life course um, changes in terms of um, you know, body size um, that contribute to, to chronic disease risk. It's all, as always, far more complex than, than one might hope to or uh, hope it to be. While waist circumference and waist hip ratio show as good, if not better, associations with mortality and morbidity risk, their possible adoption for international comparison would risk delegitimizing programs and policies for obesity control that have used population monitoring of BMI as the measure of success or failure. This is an important issue as researchers struggle to determine the effectiveness of obesity policies. When it's not clear how effective anti-obesity policies are, the easiest thing to do is just to keep taking the measurements. BMI measurement and population monitoring of obesity are globally practiced, this approach sitting on the lowest rung of intervention according to the Nuffield Public Health Intervention Ladder. This is a way of determining um, the, level of inter the appropriateness of the level of intervention um, according to, uh, to the risk or the threat that a particular disease or disorder might have to, uh, to a society. While there's enormous investment in maintaining pro programs that use consistent measures of obesity, this is no different to measures used in a wide range of other globally overseen public health programs, such as those for the control of HIV and of malaria, where risk is related to HIV positivity and parasite positivity, respectively. Allowing more categories of risk measurements, such as waist circumference, waist-hip ratio, or waist-height ratio, would make the understanding of obesity more complex and its control more difficult. Good epidemiological science aims to give the best descriptions of the ecological relationships between body fat, fatness and disease, and good obesity policy aims to use such descriptions for best practice and obesity regulation. Thus, Obesity epidemiology, which generates models of obesity in relation to chronic disease risk, also informs policy through econo econometric modelling. I'm going to turn now to obesity and economics. As the ecology of obesity has become more analytically tractable for economists, a number of issues have emerged that, to make it much more, of a pub much more than a public health issue. Obesity has been shown to be associated with income, especially in women, to carry illness costs, to be associated with the likelihood of being unemployed, and to carry significant medical costs from childhood and adolescence. A large study involving data from Sweden, the United States and the UK found a large male labour market penalty in adult life for being overweight or obese as a teenager reflecting lower skill acquisition among teenagers who are overweight or obese. Obese people are stigmatized against, carry high chronic disease risk burdens, and are seen to inhibit economic growth through taking more time off work and performing work less efficiently and effectively than non-obese people. They may also be less popular and less motivated to learn and work from childhood onward. The possible healthcare costs of obesity have been modelled in a number of places. They generally show a J-shaped relationship between BMI and projected medical costs, which is higher in men than in women, at both ends of the population distribution of body mass index. 
In the United States, obesity raises medical expenditures by roughly 75% for males and roughly 180% for females. But BMI-related all-cause mortality is roughly 70% for males, so roughly 70% greater for males than females in most high-income countries. The gender difference in medical expenditure in the U.S. is largely due to greater uptake of medical care among women than men at most levels of body mass index. The gender difference in the overall economic costs of obesity in the U.S. may reflect differences in type 2 diabetes risk according to BMI, which is more than twofold greater in women than in men from a BMI of uh, body mass index of 23.23 kilograms per meter squared upwards. Uh, increasing exponentially for both sexes. That is, the risk starts to increase before um, uh, entering categories of, of, of overweight or obesity. Type 2 diabetes is the fourth greatest cause of death in high-income countries, and its treatment and management is expensive. In 2007, the cost of diabetes to the U.S. economy was $174 billion dollars one-third of which was indirect and related to disability, work loss and premature death, and two-thirds of which was attributable to its treatment and management. Differences in bodily aesthetics and health may also influence gender differences in the economic costs of obesity. In the United States, women place higher, val place higher value on bodily aesthetics as a measure of health than do men, while a much higher proportion of women than men actively engage in weight management, most of it involving the use of commercial products and services, thus offsetting some of the medical expense to the state. While economists accept the epidemiological value of BMI as a measure of obesity, mortality rates associated with obesity, measured by BMI, do not map directly onto its economic costs. Staying in the United States, additional medical expenditure among overweight and obese women relative to women of BMI between 20 and 25 exceeds their additional mortality rates across the same, type, same BMI categories, suggesting that the illness costs of very high BMI exceed the excess mortality burden associated with it. For males, the illness costs of overweight and moderate obesity are lower than the excess mortality burden in those BMI categories. In the US, death rates due to cardiovascular disease and cancer are consistently higher for men than women at all levels of body mass index. Men are also less likely to utilize healthcare visits to doctor's offices, emergency departments and physician home visits than are women. They're also less likely to undertake preventive care, to have fewer hospital discharges and shorter hospital stays than women. So, women in the U.S. have higher medical care service utilization rates and higher associated charges than, than men because of gender-based differences in health-seeking behaviors which mediate the relationships between BMI, health risk, and medical expenditure. Epidemiology and economics are linked in their approaches to obesity, and evidence-based policy reflects this entanglement. The systems of evidence production in obesity, epidemiology, and economics rely on the body mass index, which gives an anthropometric approximation of body fatness. I've spoken to many of its limitations, all of which are known by epidemiology, public health, and economics, but the measure persists in epidemiology and public health practice 
because it is pragmatically useful in descriptive and predicting model, predictive modeling of obesity rates. But as with any measure, it's an imperfect one and caution uh, and uh, critical, its critical use uh, should continue into the future. Thank you.